Scarcity is a powerful persuasive tool, but it's also a dangerous one because when used too often or with too heavy of a hand, it can backfire and kill a deal faster than you can say, actually, dear client, there's not really an expiration on the proposal I just sent you. In today's episode, I'm going to share with you ways you might be using scarcity without even knowing it, how it impacts buyers positively and negatively, what buyer types see huge value in hard-to-get services, and the two buyer types who shut down when you use scarcity to urge the sale. This is important stuff. I hope you tune in all the way through. In fact, you might have to listen twice. It's that nuanced. Own Your Business is a podcast for event professionals who want to grow with proven approaches. I'm Sam Jacobson, a sales, pricing, and copywriting expert in the wedding industry. Throughout my career, I booked hundreds of events for millions in revenue. I've also led teams in premium and luxury markets. Now I coach people like you with my company, ID Action Consulting. It's not easy to run a business, especially if it's a business of one, because we aren't born knowing everything. Like you, I had experts who showed me the way when I was starting out and when I was ready to level up. I hope this podcast gives you the confidence to own your business. Many of you know I live on an island in Washington State, San Juan Island. If you start in Seattle, drive an hour and a half north, go to the left when you get near Canada, and drive for another half an hour to the edge of the country, you're going to reach the ferry terminal. Then you got to take a one to two hour ferry ride to get to our island. And finally, when you get off the boat, you got to drive another 10 or 15 minutes just to get to our house. I can literally see Victoria, BC from my office where I'm reporting this podcast right now. Now, San Juan Island is pretty isolated, which I like. 8,600 people live here. The school district has, I don't know, 800 or so kids in all of the schools, not one grade level, not one of the schools, but all of the schools. There's only two grocery stores, one for the locals and one for the tourists. It has one two-room movie theater with screens that are only a little bit bigger than what I have in my own home. But I'll tell you, the popcorn's a hell of a lot better. We have no stoplights, and we have about as many major stores to shop at. There's no Target, no Costco, no REI, my favorite, and any kind of clothing store is a ferry right away. And then you got to drive another half hour to an hour in the car. So needless to say, Katie and I do a lot of online shopping. Now, something you might not know about me is that I'm a huge basketball fan. I grew up in Portland. The Portland Trailblazers were my team. And my dad had season tickets that he split with a colleague of his. So we had half of the season. That meant 20-ish games. And my brother, who's just a couple years younger than I, we were the ones who typically went with my dad. And so I got about 10 games a year. Now, we were in the nosebleed seats, but I love the energy of the arena. I love spending time with my dad. When I moved to Dallas in 2015 and I was there for a few years, I lived just two blocks away from the basketball arena, American Airlines Arena, and I went to games regularly just for fun on a night when I was by myself with nothing to do. I'd be sitting there, hanging out in the apartment, Katie was across town hanging out with her kiddo. We hadn't yet moved in. And I remember I was like, why am I here? Why am I watching this on TV? Or why am I reading this book? Why don't I go out to the game? Now, I'm taking my daughter to visit colleges later this month. Two things. Number one, I'm only 45 years old, but this is a life experience that makes me feel really, really old. 
And number two, it's a real joy guiding my little girl through this super exciting time in her life. And I'm, I'm trying to get her out of the little bubble that she's grown up in on this island. It's so isolated, right? Imagine growing up here. So we're exploring colleges early. She's just a sophomore. But I want her to see what's out there. I want to get further away than just the Washington State schools. And I think she's a fan of the smaller schools in rural areas. So we're going to go out and head down to Portland, check out some liberal arts colleges in the area. And while we're there, there happens to be a Blazer game. So I'm super pumped. So my favorite memories when I was her age took place at the same arena that I can take her to. I was with my dad. Now she gets to be with me as I'm her dad. It's going to be pretty cool. When I asked her if she wanted to go, her face lit up. I mean, lit up when I told her I was getting tickets. So there I am sitting in front of the fireplace, doing a little online shopping, checking out SeatGeek to see what was out there for us for the game that we could attend. Now, let me tell you, SeatGeek, their user interface, their user experience, it is a clinic in applied behavioral economic principles. I mean, an absolute clinic. I saw sunk cost effect, herd effect, choice architecture. I mean, the gang was all there last night, including scarcity. Now, scarcity is a powerful persuasive tool that can increase both purchase intent and willingness to pay, aka conversion rates and price. All right, this combo of increasing purchase intent and willingness to pay, it's the holy grail for any marketer, any salesperson, people like you listening to this podcast. So scarcity is definitely something to leverage if you can do it well. But if you don't do it well, if it's not done well, it's a tactic that can backfire, can blow up in your face. I've talked about this before on the podcast, but I want to do a whole episode on it today because I learned new things recently that you can apply to your business immediately. But let's go back to me sitting in front of the fire, drinking a White Claw, shopping for Blazer tickets for my little girl. I don't get out to games very often anymore. So I'm thinking, let's splurge. I'm thinking middle of the court, a few rows up. But the tickets were $986 for two of them, including taxes. I was like, I mean, I'm a fan and I want to have a great time with my daughter, but I don't want to spend a grand watching the game in person. So to get there, though, to see the price, I had to put all my information in. And while I'm putting all the details for my name and address and credit card number, et cetera, just to get to the point where I can see how much the taxes and fees are going to be, there's this little clock that's ticking down in the upper part of my phone. And actually, it's, it's really not a little clock. It was pretty big. And it's super annoying. I, I knew what they were trying to do. It's that, that clock, that countdown. It's that scarcity. Time is running out. And I got to tell you, I was not a fan. It made me feel rushed and pressured. I even said something about it to Katie, who was in the kitchen. And it wasn't just that. There was more scarcity. Pop-ups. Only two seats left. Three people are looking at these same tickets. 83 Blazer fans bought seats in the past 24 hours. So between the pop-ups and the countdown timer, I was feeling really stressed. Now, as you know, I'm a boss dreamer, buyer type, right? I'm a combination of boss type and dreamer type, which means that I like to be in control and I like to explore possibilities. Take away my freedom to be in control or to explore possibilities, and I respond with what's called reactance, psychological reactance. 
I get defensive or sometimes even aggressive. And that's what happened last night. I felt cornered and annoyed by the app. So I shut it down. I punished them. I said, I'm not going to buy from you. And I went to a different site. Two minutes later, I'd found my tickets, the same ones that were almost a thousand bucks, but they were 200 less, 775 bucks. Now, I still didn't want to splurge that much. So I searched and found a reasonable set of seats, a few rows up and closer to the edge of the court, but they were half as much. I bought those and we're scheduled to be at the game in a couple of weeks. Go Blazers, Rip City, baby. Now, earlier in the day, before I was buying these tickets, I was doing a bunch of reading about loss aversion, endowment effect, and scarcity. I know it's riveting stuff on a Sunday afternoon, but I read it so you don't have to. I get to share what I learned in this podcast. Between what I was reading and my own experience with the basketball tickets, I thought it would be a good idea to talk specifically today about scarcity. Like I said, scarcity can be very, very powerful, but can also blow up in your face. It can cut both ways. What I mean by that is that it's a double-edged sword done well and with the right type of buyer. It can increase conversion rates and get them to pay higher prices. But if it's done poorly and or with the wrong buyer type, it might have very little impact and sometimes can actually negatively impact the purchase decision. So let's dig into that. Scarcity is a tactic used to create interest or drive up value by making something seem rare or hard to get. It's most often used in the luxury space to make an object appeal more valuable. It can also create urgency to make a decision or joy in feeling unique or like you have special access to something. Now, I see wedding pros use scarcity haphazardly all throughout the buyer's journey. Remember, I do sales processes quite a bit, over 100 this year. And here are some examples of scarcity that I've seen, sometimes used deliberately, other times they didn't know that they were being employed. The most common one is to put an expiration date on a proposal. You've seen this before where you create a proposal and you put in there, this proposal is good until this date or for this many days. And it's something that's clear and apparent to the reader. That's scarcity. Another favorite is to share that you only have a few spots left for the upcoming year. I see this in Instagram profiles. I see it in correspondence with clients, usually right in the very first reply to an inquiry. Another scarcity tactic is that you could say that you only take on a few events every year. This is also something I see in cover letters, on proposals, in Instagram profiles. Now here's one that I don't see very often, but I do see it every once in a while. It's when it, you haven't heard from an inquiry after a few emails and you send one last one that says, I haven't heard from you in a while, so I'm going to take you off the follow-up list. Is that what you want? Or something like that. I first heard about this... I think it was back in 2016, maybe 2017, when I was reading a book by Chris Voss, a negotiation expert called Never Split the Difference. And he calls this kind of approach the magic email. But you got to use specific words in a certain order to hit the high notes for effectiveness, which frankly, most people that I see use it don't get right. I've also seen scarcity used by people pitting two couples against each other for a single available date. You know how this works. You have somebody who inquires for, say, I don't know, October 12th. And then you talk with them, you send them a proposal, and they sit on it. And so then you reach out and you say, hey, just want to give you a heads up. 
somebody else is looking at this date, are you interested in securing it? That's scarcity. Another thing that you can do, and this is something I typically see with more aggressive salespeople, is to use a closing technique that's called the takeaway. I, I remember my friend Eric told me about this when he was in sales training back in college. So here's how the takeaway works. You put an offer out with a deal sweetener. Say, I don't know, like an extra hour of coverage or an additional set of edits or concept sketches or maybe a complimentary mock-up if you're a floor designer or a stationer, whatever. You give them something, a little bonus, but you put a time limit on it. It's going to go away if you don't secure the deal by this date and time. Okay, that's the takeaway. You give them something and then you take it away. Here's another. Making people wait to get on a discovery call with you or putting in fake appointments in your calendar to make it look like you're busy. I see this all the time. In fact, scheduling apps like Acuity, you can even have them do this automatically with a toggle of a switch. It makes people think that you're busier than you really are. Or maybe the reason why Acuity offers it is because it's so convenient and easy to use. I don't know, but I see it a lot. But just because scarcity is available for an option or you see somebody else doing it, doesn't mean that you should do it too. In that situation, for your buyer, for that kind of buyer, scarcity doesn't always work. And in fact, it can backfire. If you couldn't already tell, I'm not a huge fan of scarcity as a persuasive tactic. I know that it can be used effectively, but I've, I've just always disliked buying in that kind of way. I don't like having scarcity used on me like when I was buying the Blazer tickets. And I don't recommend it much to my clients or talk about it positively on the podcast too much. Most of the tactics that I just listed above or, or mentioned, like I said, with my experience with SeatGeek, they feel salesy. You know, those little ads that pop up on the websites of like, so-and-so John Jay from Tulsa, Oklahoma just bought this product or whatever it might be. Those things, they just feel salesy. So yesterday when I was sitting there on the couch reading on a rainy day in front of the fire i read this research paper on scarcity for narcissists hear me out scarcity for narcissists and i was absolutely blown away by how effective scarcity is for one particular buyer type now they didn't use this language but it kind of translates into our vernacular that we use here on the podcast and with our clients and that is the dreamer because the dreamer's got a little bit of narcissism in him i'm going to explain more here in just a second so a quick refresher for everyone on what characterizes the dreamer buyer type. So the dreamer buyer type is one of four buyer types. We have the relator, the analyzer, the boss, and the dreamer. The dreamer is all about ideas and opportunities. They look at the possibilities out there. They're super collaborative. They love working in groups. And they're very, very visual. So for weddings, they tend to favor heavy decor, floral, rentals, design, even stationary. And if you look at the dreamer and you peel back the layers of what motivates them, what are they driven by? You'll find that esteem, recognition from others, especially in their peer group, is what motivates them. And by definition, then makes them rank higher on the narcissism scale. Dreamers often see their wedding as a statement, a statement about who they are, a statement about what they want others to recognize in them, about them. 
and their style, their taste, maybe even their wealth, certainly their vision. And to make that happen, to get people to recognize them, to see that as a status symbol, they're often willing to blow the budget to make it happen. Now, like I said yesterday, what I was reading blew my mind. According to this study, high level of narcissism in a buyer indicates that when they are exposed to scarcity, they might spend double on the project. Double. Why? Because they feel that the rarity, the scarcity, implies a uniqueness, and that uniqueness symbolizes status. And they want to feel unique. They want the status. So somebody who has a high level of narcissism could be willing to spend up to double on what it is that you sell if you use scarcity as a tactic. Not only are they willing to spend a lot more, they're also willing to buy a lot more. It increased the intent to buy by 75%. 75%. That's huge. So if you're selling to dreamers, whether you're marketing to them or if you're selling directly to a dreamer that you have identified in the sales process and they have a healthy or unhealthy, if it's taken too far, degree of narcissism in their personality, scarcity can be highly effective. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. This is that nuance that I talked about in the intro to the podcast. The same study showed that those on the other end of the spectrum, not on the high end of narcissism, but on the low end with low levels of narcissism, they're virtually unaffected by scarcity. Not a big deal. It was nothing significant in the data that showed that they would be impacted in a positive way with scarcity was used. They buy at about the same rate with or without scarcity applied. In other words, with our vernacular and the different buyer types, the relator and the analyzer that would likely score low on the narcissism scale, they're not affected very much by scarcity. So let me repeat all of that one more time. Dreamers heavily influenced by scarcity. Relators and analyzers are not impacted by it. Here's where it gets even more interesting. When the scientists who conducted these studies looked at the case made for why something was scarce or rare or exclusive, it didn't really matter that much to the dreamer, but that reason mattered a lot to the relator and the analyzer. In fact, if the reasoning that accompanied the scarcity tactic was weak, it reduced the purchase intent. It made them less likely to buy if scarcity was used, but the reason was weak. And get this, the attitude towards the product was also low. They didn't like the project as much if somebody used scarcity and a bad reason. So in my world, this means that relators and analyzers will buy less and dislike your brand more if you put pressure on scarcity, but don't have a good reason for it. If you have a weak argument for why something is scarce, it's actually going to make them less likely to buy. And they're going to think worse of your brand. And it's not just a little negative impact. It's a lot. Like they have half as much of a good feeling about the product and have about a third less intent to buy. That's huge. That's a really big deal because relators 
are the number one buyer type that we see in our market research. And that means that when you're putting out marketing messages, they're getting consumed, absorbed by relators. So if your ideal client is a relator and you're putting out weak messages about why you only take on a handful of clients a year, or you're trying to get the analyzer groomed to make a decision by putting a random expiration date on your proposal, guess what? It's likely these tactics are not only not working, but they're actually decreasing your brand and product's likability and their intent to buy from you. So two things are still the same for me and one is new when it comes to scarcity. After learning all of this, here's the first two things that are the same. Use scarcity sparingly unless you know what you're doing. It's dangerous, it's double-edged, and it can cut you the wrong way. Don't use scarcity without a good reason. If you do that with the wrong buyer, they're going to penalize you with no purchase and bad word of mouth. Those are the two things that confirmed what it was that I was already aware of. But here's the thing. This is the big pickup. And the one thing that I really wanted to share. That dreamer buyer types and to some extent bosses as well, because they've got some narcissism, can be heavily and favorably influenced to buy more and pay more using scarcity. And here's the really incredible thing is that you don't even need a good reason on why something is scarce. Just putting it out there is enough. Scarcity, like most of what needs to be known about sales and marketing and growing your business successfully is highly, highly nuanced. I hope that you can see that now, which is why you're so smart for tuning into podcasts like this that give you the background on specific approaches and tactics. Just because somebody else is doing it, whether it's your colleague or somebody you look up to, doesn't mean that it's a right fit for you or for your buyer. Now, if you find this interesting and you want to tap into it all, go for it. But if you don't have a clue about what type of buyer your ideal client is, or you don't want to risk making a mistake about that when it comes to any kind of messaging, please reach out to our company. We're here to help with putting those ideas into action on your website, especially with copy and messaging. Boom. That's it for this episode on Own Your Business. If you've heard me on a stage or a workshop or someone else's podcast, you know I have a hard time keeping it short, but I know you're busy. So thanks for spending time with me today. You have a ton of options for guides when it comes to getting you to where you want to go. I hope you found someone you can continue to trust. If you have a friend who could use practical strategies to own their business, please share this episode with them. If you can't think of anyone in particular, we settle for a quick review on whatever podcast platform you listen through. 